0: It's time for the 7th Avenue project. Online at 7thavenueproject.com. Hello everybody and welcome to the 7th Avenue project. I'm Robert Polly. And today, as we enter the movie award season, for better or worse, we're going to take a somewhat ambivalent look at the medium of film with someone who has devoted much of his life to it. David Thompson is one of the world's most respected film critics. In fact, the poet and novelist Michael Ondaatje called him the best writer on film in our time. And others have bestowed similar accolades. Cinema was, for David Thompson, love at first sight. But over the years, as happens with love affairs, things have gotten kind of complicated and occasionally troubled. And he's become uncomfortably aware that movies aren't always so good for us. His new book charts his own changing relationship to film and that of our culture in general. It's called The Big Screen, The Story of the Movies. But it is also about a variety of smaller screens, like TV, computers, and the handheld devices through which we experience so much of our lives these days something that David Thompson also has serious misgivings about, as you'll hear in our conversation. Stay tuned. David, you write in your new book, The Big Screen, The Story of the Movies, this book is a love letter to a lost love, I suppose. It has the semblance of being a history, but it might be some kind of novel called The Moviegoer*. Goer. What was that love, and, and, and how was it lost?
1: Well... It was the most exciting, compelling, alluring thing I first discovered in life going to the movies at the age of four or five. I mean, I loved sport, but I clearly was not going to have the ability to pursue a sporting career. I loved sex and romance, but that's a thing that you will pursue anyway it's a sort of it's everyone's hobby well not everyone's hobby maybe but most people's hobby but film was just ravishing for me transfixing and I would see any film it didn't matter the 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 ability to distinguish good and bad came along much later, and I'm not sure it's terribly significant even now. It was just being in the dark with the screen and the light. I loved it. And it became clear to me that it might be what one did when one grew up.
0: I suspect the love was was promiscuous. Well, I think,
1: yeah, I would go to a local theatre, to see a film. But the trailers that I saw for next week's films (laughs) were so great that I couldn't wait for it to be next week. And, you know, you fall in love with a different story every week or twice a week or whatever, depending on how often you go, or a different actress, different actor. Uh, And, yes, I, I I think that there is a sort of a way in which... If you're a man, the women in the movies become a kind of harm, you know, and uh, it can have some serious effects on real life yeah. later on as you go along. Not necessarily, but it can have. You know?
0: What were the movies at various stages of your life that you really fell in love with?
1: Well, it started with whatever was playing at the local theaters I went to. I was very lucky in that I lived in suburban london and there were three theaters within walking distance and another three that i could get to by a bus and i went to whatever they were playing so and i started going in about 1945 and obviously i got my parents and other relatives to take me but then i started going on my own as early as i could and in the school holidays i would go and if the film was rated as being unfit for my age, I would get strangers to take me in, that kind of thing. Um, so I went to see what was on mm. and I, I had no knowledge of film history. I began to read the few books that I could find about film in my teens and that. That taught me that the world was much larger. And a key moment was I had read in a couple of books that Citizen Kane was an important film. I couldn't quite grasp why from what I'd read, but it was. And of course, in those days, you couldn't see it because movie theaters really only played new films. So old films, what do you do? And it happened when I was, I think I was 15. One of the theaters near me suddenly decided it was going to play Citizen Kane. And I went and was just, I was at a turning point, you know. I mean, it, it, it was a film that, um, it was a film unlike anything I'd ever seen. I thought it was amazing. And, and, um, I began to see then that there was something, much more to this medium. You say you saw Citizen
0: Kane at at what age? I think
1: it was 15. 15. Mm. And this would have been when? 1955. I suppose I was 14.
0: And that was a movie that really didn't ascend to its now hollowed stature for decades after it was made. Is that true?
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when it came out, it got a lot of attention, but not not necessarily attention of the right sort. It was actually well-reviewed, but it didn't do well commercially for various reasons. And it was only, well, certainly by the later 50s that people began to acclaim it. And in 1962, when Sight & Sound held their every 10-year poll of critics, it came top. It was top of that Sight & Sound poll until this uh, this year, uh, up I mean, sixty two to two thousand and two, it was the top film. Now it's number two, displaced by Vertigo. Yeah. Um,
0: what did you, as a fourteen or fifteen year old, see in, in that film, in Citizen Kane?
1: One thing I saw was that a film could be a more comprehensive experience than I had ever thought possible. The world of that film challenged me much more than any other film's atmosphere had. Most of the films I had seen were emotional, often in a very sentimental way. I had to be taken out of the cinema when Lassie was being chased by the Gestapo, that kind of thing. But the the emotional level here was greater than I'd ever known. And I would say that it, it, it opened me up to a depth of feeling in works of imagination altogether. I didn't come from a world in which the arts were much appreciated. Um, so I had to find it out for myself. And I would say that Cain was a crucial stage in that.
0: It was a film that made you work, critically. Yes. Made you try to puzzle it out.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And yet many more films attempt to seduce you to the point where you're not thinking at all.
1: Well, it's easy to say that Cain is more difficult, but I'm not sure that you can do anything without thinking. And the concealed elements of thought, the ideology in the entertainment film are enormous. I mean, the assumptions they make about who men and women are, what family is, what honor is, what courage is, uh, what happiness is, those are enormous. And they have a huge influence on people. They seep into your being and they affect the way you think and feel.
0: So the quote I read uh, a moment ago in which he said this book is a love letter to
1: a lost love. Mm. Yeah. What's the lost part? Well, I think that, let me put it this way, my children do not have the kind of experience that I had. They don't trust it. They do not actually very much care about going to the theater to see a film. They will. They are used to watching it in some way on television or on their computers or smaller screens still. They do not believe in the ideology in the films in the way that I did, and I think the whole audience did once upon a time. They think it's a trick. They think it's a version of advertising, which it is. They're right. And... um I was, if you like, a member of the sucker generation, but I'm very happy to have been there <laughs> because I wouldn't have got what I got out of it, you know, but for that. And I think, relatively speaking, they're a little more cynical and less romantic than I am. And I grieve over that. And I, I grieve over what is what has happened to the medium. Not that I believe there's any way to go back and i i don't like going back in any form and i don't know what the future is going to be and the technology is so important to that that there's every reason to hope and think that it will turn into something wonderful again but it'll be a different form it 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 will not be people going in packed crowds to big movie theaters on a big screen watching film being projected almost all of those elements that i listed in that description are no longer really functioning
0: despite uh, the efforts of the industry to create a bigger spectacle with large screens and 3d you know projection and digital effects and so on and so forth
1: yeah i mean those things have all happened and and they've had their moment and it's not that they haven't produced wonderful things sometimes but I think everybody who's involved with the business or the art or whatever you, you want to call it knows that it's going somewhere else.
0: This book is in, in some way uh, the story of how that distance and suspicion and what you called cynicism evolved, yes? Yeah. Um. Were we ever at a time when we were such suckers that, for instance, that famous anecdote about the film of the oncoming train that caused people to – Rush out of the theater was actually true. Were we ever that vulnerable to film?
1: I think we were. And I, I, I think it went on longer than that story might sort of suggest. Um, I remember, for instance, when I came to this country in the mid seventies, I was impressed by the greater, excitement level in audiences they responded to films in ways that didn't happen in england i remember particularly seeing one flew over the cuckoo's nest in new york the day or whatever that it opened and people were crying out trying to warn the Jack Nicholson character, and deeply distressed by what was happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. In other words, the the level of belief was intense still. And when Brian and Clyde was first shown, people were shattered at the ending in a way that the characters are. When Psycho was shown, people were in a kind of shock. I remember, I saw it when I was 19, uh, and after the shower murder, I remember saying to myself, under my breath, you know, please don't do that to me again. So I The story about the Lumiere audience, which there is no verification for, as far as I know.
0: This is the silent film of the train. Yes, 1895. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think people told the story because they wanted to believe in that kind of involvement. I can easily believe it happened. Mm. Um, And um, I think it went on certainly into the 70s.
0: And then there was The Exorcist, of course.
1: The Exorcist, yeah. Yeah,
0: People got hysterical. and Yeah. You know, I, mean, you, but...
1: I mean, I tell the story in the book. Um, I took my wife to see Alien, the first Alien. And uh, when the creature comes out of John Hurt's chest, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife got up and said, that's it. I'm going home. You stay. I know you'll want to see it. She was saying, in effect, I'm not going to be as disgusted and revolted and terrified as I have just been. She went. Now, years later, our son wanted to see it, and I was very, very nervous of him seeing it because I regarded it as a very frightening film. He he was, I don't know, eight, nine, that kind of age. Eventually, I yielded, and I said, well, I'm going to watch it with you, and the first sign of distress I'm going to turn it off and we we went through the great scene and he turned to me and he said that's cool how did they do it
0: well you're nostalgic a bit I think or dubious about the loss of that kind of credulity that we had until mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. and a new generation that is already looking behind the screen toward the making of the movie um, but was it a good thing to be so manipulable and was it was that power exercised wisely by the filmmakers themselves
1: no i don't think it was a good thing and i don't think it was exercised widely, wisely um no i think it was um it was a mass medium and a mass medium is a way in which the power in society seeks to entertain and control the mass, and I don't think anyone in old Hollywood would have spelled it out in that way, but in effect, they were making films that would reassure people through very testing difficult times about the validity of the American answer to the way a society should be, what it should believe in. Um, And a whole lot of myths were inflicted on us which have had terrible effects and and indeed effects that we may not recover from. Uh, The the confusion of information and advertising, perhaps the most important. No, I, I, I think the mass public... Credulity can be a very dangerous th- thing. The only good thing about it is that it is what makes people say, well, what happened next? And don't stop the music now. You know, it it, it can be a spell that you want to go on, and great work has been produced in that, mm. in, through that mechanism. Now,
0: when you say advertising are you referring to outright advertising in, say, TV, or are you referring to the ideologies that you mentioned earlier that are sort of smuggled into the plot lines of films?
1: Both. Yeah. I mean, I think that the American film particularly, and the American film had a huge influence on films in every country, but the American film particularly contained uh, a whole set of values, which actually were being promoted and advertised. And it is the truth that they were being promoted and advertised by a group of people, a fairly small group of people, who had just come to this country from Europe and Eastern Europe and were desperate not just to be successes, but to to make an America where success would be more lasting than it had been in the countries they'd come from, mm. you know. So it's, it's all tangled up with the American dream and um, it's a prelude to actual advertising. But the collective experience of movies was advertising telling the truth, the size of a kitchen, should you smoke? How do you fall in love? Don't you want to be happy? All those things. And they are all they are all the subject of ads, mm-hmm. as they later appeared mm. on television.
0: How much of those messages that are part of the foundation of a lot of the storytelling in those movies was simply inherited from other art forms? I mean, movies didn't come out of thin air. They were preceded by novels and by theater uh, and by other visual arts. How much did movies simply recast these things in a new medium?
1: Well, it's a very good point, and and I think you're correct. Uh, the The code of morality in films is essentially the code of morality in fiction of most forms. However, you should bear in mind that by the time movies began and reduced that morality to a very, very crude version of itself, one that everybody could take in, the novel was already at Henry James. Mm -hmm. It had acquired and developed a much more sophisticated version of morality, but, of course, one that would never appeal to a mass audience. And I think film arises when it does because the increase in population suddenly began to become a major factor. But, yes, movies had taken on the code that came from those forms. I think that the crucial thing about the movies, the thing that makes a difference is in the technological form which is that you are seeing the most complete version of reality next to reality itself but you can't get into it you can't participate you're cut off and that it begins a kind of helplessness in people which i think has reached a fairly critical point now in that you know we live in a variety of crises, and real crises that could end us. And yet I think most people feel absolutely helpless about dealing with them.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about the ideology of the mainstream film, yeah. the lessons that films presume to teach us hmm. <laughs> about how to get along, how to, how to fall in love, as you say, how to acquit ourselves with honor in crises. In fact, how to handle crises. Right? Films are almost always Absolutely. about a crisis. Absolutely. And how often they tell us how a man should behave in a you crisis. Bet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the people explaining these things to us, um, you know, I think in my naive younger life, movies were just movies. They were a kind of vision of an ideal reality. And I took it, you know, sort of viscerally that that was true. Of course, as I grew up, I realized there were people making these movies. They were people who usually didn't know how to sustain a marriage. Right. They were people who, as far as I know, weren't war heroes in most cases. In fact, they didn't do any of the things they depicted in their films. (laughs) All too true. (laughs) Yes. But how strange that we as a culture have taken so much of what we want to be and think we should be from people who are really, you know, at as much a loss
1: as we are. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that, uh, I think that, the odd thing is that that realization came quite gradually uh there really was a fairly lengthy period in which the people in movies and the people behind the process were admired and sometimes worshiped i mean stars were worshiped quite often um but as you say they 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 did not have the most um meritorious lives there are exceptions you know but, but on the whole they did not on the whole they behaved with a lot of money the way most people behave with a lot of money i.e badly <laughs> um and again that's in human nature too i think there's an interesting point about this which is that films were made by groups they were made by the system the factory Even if you were a director or a writer or a star actor, the people who sort of historically have been given the responsibility, you could tell yourself, well, I'm not really responsible. It's their film. Uh, So that blurred the the whole question of responsibility.
0: Mm. Um, You made a a really interesting point that this medium that has come to seem to many people as quintessentially American – that the real pioneers of the American film industry actually were immigrants in many cases. Mm. The studio heads, the executives, but also the directors, a lot of the early directors mm. were coming mm. from Europe. And they started promoting a kind of gospel of Americanness in these films. Were they consciously inventing a version of America they wanted to live in, or were they trying to assimilate and just do what they thought Americans had already established?
1: I think it's a bit of both. Um... I mean, there are very calculated things. When Louis B. Mayer came to this country, he looked around and he decided that his birthday was July the 4th. I don't think he really knew his actual birthday. But he said, July the 4th will be great because it will make people think I'm Uh, ultra-American. At the same time, Yes, they were looking around and seeing what America was and trying to be like that, you know. Um, the country was, I mean, relatively unformed. When movies began, I mean, let's say movies began in 1900, they they're a bit before that, but say it's 1900, I guess the population of the country was less than a third of what it is now it really is a different country um and the concentration in the east was greater than it is now um and you said yourself everyone was an immigrant and i think that's true and and you know it's always fascinating to see how rare it is in film history to become, to come across what you might call an authentic American, you know, almost everyone comes from somewhere else. Mm, mm. Um, And that is, for the rest of the world, that is one of the great excitements about America because it's the... and, And I think that's still active. I mean, I think people in lots of different countries want to come to America. It's because they feel that the range of opportunity and the range of getting what you think of rather than falling into place as the society requires of you, is very compelling. I felt it. I could never have done what I did if I'd stayed in England.
2: Mm.
0: What brought you to the U.S.?
1: Came to teach. An American college opened a campus in England near where I lived, and I was trying to write, which meant I was impoverished, and I went along and said, is there anything I could do? And it turned out that they had advertised a film course in their catalog, but they had no one to teach it. So I got to teach on a part-time basis. And then eventually, a few years later, the, um, the college asked me to go to America. and mm. that's So that's why mm. I came. Mm.
0: Did you believe in the American mythology that you'd seen represented in films?
1: Hmm. Well, I think you'd have to take that bit by bit. Um, I only realized this when I came, but when I looked back, I saw that it had been there in the movies. I believed in space and light, uh, and it sounds silly maybe to say that, but but coming from a cramped, overcast country. Those were very important things. I believed in the way Americans talked as compared with the way Brits talked. I did not believe in the gun. Mm. First time I saw a policeman carrying a gun <laughs> in New Hampshire, which is the first time I had seen a gun, I think. Um, I was horrified, you know. Uh, I did not believe in the the cult of the man, uh, and I, I think I knew that the whole pursuit of happiness thing was one of the craziest ideas any country had been burdened with, you know. So, but, you know, so it was some and some yeah, not. Yeah, um, yeah. I loved being in America and I still generally love being in America. I love being in California more than I did on the East Coast, uh, but but I think that in the just in the time I've been here, which is oh, 35 years or so, um I don't think the country has improved too much.
0: Mm-hmm. On the subject of the light, you point out in your book that American films, especially those coming out of California, as most of them do, did capture a kind of um, essentially American Western light, a light that... Uh, is bright, that is optimistic, yeah. that is that is simple and hopeful. But that wasn't true of all national cinemas. No. The Germans, for instance. Based on darkness. Based on darkness, shadow, yes. Yes. gloom. Yes. And that at some point Americans picked up on that, that Americans changed after World War II. And yeah. we have film noir, yeah. which is full of shadow. Yeah um partly the the latent influence of the german filmmakers some of whom did you know immigrate to to hollywood also the french
1: yes also the fact that if you if you have darkness on screen you don't need to build a set and this was at a time when the economics of film were under great pressure i mean during the war and just after the war um Films could not throw money around in quite the way they could before. And film noir was a very nice way of saving money.
0: I had no idea.
1: Yeah. Big factor.
0: But it wasn't just the lighting of the set. Oh, no. It's, it's, it was the whole it's mood. It's the attitudes, it? yeah, attitude. Yeah.
1: And, of course, the attitudes are very complicated.
0: What's your favorite film noir? What are your favorites?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I, I'm not very good... At having favorites above all, I mean, if, if I, I suppose if I if I wanted to have a little festival of film noir over the weekend, I would want to watch Double Indemnity, Detour, Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, I don't know. You mentioned Kiss others. Me Deadly, which.
0: Mm at least in my much more limited viewing experience, is probably the the most amoral yeah. uh, of the noir films I've ever seen. It's an extraordinary film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the one that, while a lot of people have uh, theorized that film noir was partly a reflection of all kinds of post-war and cold war anxieties, including nuclear holocaust, yeah. that's the one film that actually brings uh, nuclear uh, weapons into the story itself in a very weird way, a way you don't expect Absolutely. in a detective story. Absolutely, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. An amazing conclusion to the <laughs> film. Yeah, it it it's a quite dazzling film because you know the man who directed it, Robert Aldrich, he was a talented person and he made other films that I think are quite good. He made some pretty bad films, but he made nothing. The approaches Kiss me deadly, and the material was. Trash.
0: Yeah, it was a Mickey Spillane
1: novel. Yeah, the actors are fine, but they're not, it's not a film that you treasure for the great acting, you know. Uh, It's just astonishing. And every now and then something like that happens. And I, I do believe, I believe in the auteur theory, I believe in directors, but I also believe in the complexity of how films are made and how the chemistry varies all the time. Another film from almost the same period, almost the same year, I think it is the same year, that is just astonishing is The Night of of the Hunter. Now, you know, everyone says, oh, well, that's Charles Lawton, and Charles Lawton was just brilliant, poetic, and eccentric. All true, but it's... Astonishing because of the novel, which is astonishing, because of the screenplay, whoever wrote it, this great confusion over that. It's astonishing because Robert Mitchum was let out of the cage for once, uh, because Stanley Cortez photographed it so beautifully. You know, there's a whole lot of factors. And um I'm happy to give Lawton the credit and to praise Lawton, but I suspect the truth is that It was the coming together of a number of talented and probably dissatisfied people, people who had not quite done what they wanted. For instance, on Cain, I think it owes a lot to the imagination of Greg Toland, which had been rather restricted. He's the great cinematographer. Great photographer, never really given his head. And all of a sudden he finds this kid who says, look, I don't know much about photography, and told it is liberated. Mm. Uh, and that can the happen. Kid being you worse and well. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we could talk about Citizen Kane for the whole hour. Um, so we have American film going from resolutely optimistic, you know, the world is an orderly place, moral order is ours to to enforce or restore, you know, to the noir... Ethos, Mm. which is bitter, um, pessimistic, Mm. uh, sometimes yeah, sometimes cruel. Yep, like the Mike Hammer of Kiss Me Deadly. Right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. who's a serious hard ass. Mm. Um, But was that for real, or or was that a pose? Do you think? I mean, I I noticed that uh, some people's affection for what they think of is really, really hard-knuckled kinds of storytelling is really a kind of romantic uh, self-delusion, you know, that I'm tough and I don't care, you know, or right. I'm above all that sentimentality. Right. But it's a new kind of sentimentality.
1: Yeah, there is a sentimentality in noir, and it's there, I think, in the way it's become a cult with people who only watch noir films and will dig up anything they can possibly call
0: right, right.
1: noir. Right, um there were a lot of bad noir films um i do think that i think the mood of the world changed at the end of the war i mean the it seems to me that the full discovery of the concentration camps and and the nature of the holocaust and then the revelation of how many millions had been killed and a way in which the war had really been somewhere else. I mean, Britain and America both believed they were fighting and winning the war. And to a degree they did. But really, Russia fought and won the war. And what was done to so many millions of people in the 30s and the 40s, and then the revelation and this really was a revelation because it had been kept so secret of the power that could be unleashed like that with the atom bomb i think that uh, i think that had a great deal to do with um the mood of noir as did the fact that it's really the first time a mass of americans leave america and discover how terrible much of the world is you know i mean soldiers had had a very bad time and seen terrible things and and you get that in the novel and you get it in uh, a lot of different forms but yeah there was there was a real disenchantment and, and and mccarthyism added to that the whole paranoia over that and and hollywood i think lost its confidence they lost confidence chiefly because they realized the audience had changed. And whereas in the 30s, I think, they had known what to do to get the audience, I think they realized that suddenly they didn't have that trick anymore, that knack. And um, it was trouble, you know, and it was trouble really for the medium until television came along and created a whole new empire. But I think I think that noir was – I think it was real in many ways, but it quickly, like anything Hollywood does, it became a franchise that copied itself. Yeah.
0: You know, in, in reading some of your criticism of films, I sense a real guardedness uh, with respect to sentimentality. Uh, am I right about that? Are you someone who does not like to be manipulated <laughs> that way? Probably, yeah, <laughs> does a film have to earn the right to make you you know, feel moved or tearful?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that the history of the movies teaches you that um, the ways of getting a flip, cheap response, a legion, and you know, film invented a lot of them, but they're very common. Film music. Is an example of that, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, i I think that I think that for a film to be moving, it's got to, as you say, earn it. But that can happen for me. Um, the new film that hasn't opened in the Bay Area yet, Amour. Michael Haneke's films, one of the most moving films I've ever seen. Um, a really great film. But I, I, I can be moved a lot. But but yeah, I, if I if I get the hang of your plan to move me and how you're doing it, yeah, we look for sincerity, don't we? Mm. Mm. <laughs> but we become more sophisticated about seeing the tricks in sincerity. It's it, it's part of the problem of modern consciousness.
0: Well, you know, I was thinking about it because I think of those people who um, who fancy themselves. A hard sell as yeah. as too tough to fall for all of the sloppy you know schmaltzy tricks yeah. of Hollywood films. Yeah. So they gravitate toward the tough films, yes. and they become suckers for those. Yeah, it's a, it
1: it's another kind of sentimentality. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they like yeah.
0: Reservoir yeah. Dogs, let's yes. say, because that one seems to have absolutely no soft spot whatsoever.
1: Right. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. To, also, it has virtually. No women although the femme fatale is a noir character and there are some very good ones i do think that hard-boiled cinema in america is very afraid of real women and not not good on them you know reservoir dogs is a very good example of that
0: well i'm tempted to say of course there was jackie brown but that Tarantino doesn't really do women. He doesn't.
1: No. no, I. I mean, Jackie Brown's a film I like. I like Pulp Fiction too, which does have some interesting female characters. But I think there's, I think he has a tendency, to be one of the guys. It it it's there in a director who I think is a good deal better. Scorsese doesn't do women that well. <laughs>
0: We're coming up against another fact of the history of cinema, which is it has been mostly driven by males at the top. Yep. Most of the great directors, studio heads, etc., screenwriters, are men. Yep. And yet the thing that they're writing about as often as not is the relationship between the sexes. Yep. Often with all the blind spots that men have. Yep. <laughs> yep. Have you seen... Um, Films by by women directors over the last 20, 30 years, where we're starting to see many, many more. Have you seen them
1: yeah. changing that? I, I think that even in America, it's becoming more possible for women to make films. There have been some women producers and executives, too. It's a battle, I think, for them. Uh, but, yeah, I do think the female spirit is getting into films more it remains to be seen how far film movie was always a male fantasy i don't think women fantasize in the same sort of way they're not comfortable fantasizing in the same way and to that extent they may never really satisfy themselves in film you know what i mean
0: Actually I'd like you to to explain that a little more. I mean obviously as moviegoers women are as devoted to to, to film as as men are as moved by film. Mm. Uh so where is it that, that there's a difference? Well
1: there? the voyeuristic thrust in films was historically male. And I think there is rather more latent homosexuality in films, in the classic films, than there is real expression of the female sensibility. And I think that's a very tough thing to overcome. And I'm not sure that there isn't something in the nature of the medium and this, this, this stress on watching reality when it's unreal that isn't a male thing Hmm. Um, I don't know but Hmm. it it, it intrigues me Um, I think that here's the point women are making more films excellent women are making some very good films excellent I'm not sure yet that a woman I'm thinking while I speak Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that a woman has made a film that really gets at the nature of the medium and produces an incredible, passionate excitement, But one. And you're not going to like the one, because <laughs> it's Lainey Riefen-style Triumph of the oh. World. <laughs> which is, I think, a great film. Really? Yes. But, obviously, an unspeakable contribution to culture. But I think she knew where and what the passion was in film.
0: I think you should unpack that for us. This, of course, is the, the film made uh, as a propaganda instrument for the Nazi party. Sure. Of the Nuremberg rallies. Yes. Right? Yes. Everyone credits Riefenstahl with being a very good creator of images, Mm -hmm. of of these passionate crowds and these massive spectacles
1: and all Mm -hmm. that.
0: Mm -hmm. Tell me more about what you think she did beyond that.
1: I think she gets the passion of fascism and power and strength. She was much more than an image maker, she is a great editor. And I think this was the film that expressed her. Her other work is not nearly as interesting. I don't like what lies behind what made this film what it is. I don't blame the film for everything that happened later. But this is an extraordinary film about man's power and I mean male power mm. Mm. and a woman got it mm. and and um, you know it, the film has been totally colored by the history of the war and that's inevitable. You can't even show the film in Germany. Did you know that? I didn't. It's illegal to show it. It's an extraordinary film. It's quite as extraordinary as Battleship Potemkin. And Potemkin, it seems to me, is virtually as fascist as uh, Triumph of the Will. Now, that's not a view that is generally held, but I believe it. And well, I,
0: it's definitely propagandistic. There's no doubt about yes, that. Yes, yes. And it's definitely state-sanctioned yeah. propaganda at that.
1: Well, we call it propaganda because the enemy made it. <laughs> it's it's actually another kind of advertising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know?
0: Well, I mean, there shouldn't be any problem in saluting the great filmmaking that goes into a film, even with malign intent or even with bad historical consequences. And obviously, another great example is Birth of a Nation. Yeah. Um, you absolutely. Know, a milestone, uh, you know, a gigantic achievement yes. cinema wise, but yeah. a malign film, maybe an evil film in its content. Yes, I think People so. People died because of that film. Yes. Now we've got Quentin Tarantino. Talking about his film is almost a response to Birth of a Nation, his new film, Django Unchained. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. So we no. probably shouldn't talk about it too much. Yeah. But it's interesting that um, Tarantino in part sees himself engaged in a dialogue, maybe, with that very old film.
1: Uh, maybe, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tarantino, it seems to me, is 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 very characteristic of a certain type of filmmaking. Um Pouring over with love of the medium, intensely creative and imaginative, but does not know a lot about the world or life. And film has been kind to people like that, I would say. People who've led actually very, very sheltered lives and... More than they realize, know the world from the movies they've seen. Mm.
0: When did movies become so well-established, so much a part of life, that you could start making movies that really only referred to other movies or that only drew from other movies in the depiction of the supposed world out there?
1: Well, I think it began early because it was so novel- a form and no one knew anything so that everyone grasped on to what seemed to be working, you know. I mean, that's that's how we get stardom uh, for the simple reason that audiences came out of films and asked the manager of the theater, who was that in the film? Because the films didn't always tell you who it was.
0: You mean in the early days? Yes. The credits weren't very informative. Yeah, and said,
1: you know, I'd like to see him again or her again. So star careers developed from that. Um, I think what really tipped it over was television. Because up until the coming of television, people who really went to the movies had probably gone twice a week. So, you know... They'd seen, let's say, six hours moving imagery in a week. All of a sudden, they became people who could see six hours of it in a day. And television's enormous and quite ruthless appetite for material really brought home how few basic stories there were and how often they got repeated. So an element of campness came into it, you know, and a predictability. And I think that has a lot to do with the way in which people start to make movies about movies. And Mm -hmm. if you take someone like Jean-Luc Godard, for instance, his first films, the first six or seven years of his career, they are films that take off from and reconstruct American cinema. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's been a lot of that mm-hmm. going on. And that's why it's harder and harder to make a film without that sort of overlay of um, knowledge and cynicism. Mm.
0: When uh, Norma Desmond said in Sunset Boulevard that the pictures have gotten small, she wasn't really referring to TV, but she might as well have been. Yeah, She wasn't,
1: no, because, I mean, that's 1950 and... and Relatively few people had TVs yeah. by then. Uh, no, she she uh, she was talking about all movies. I, all right. I think she was talking about movies that she was not in, <laughs>
0: but she was prophetic in a way.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and it was intensely prophetic. Mm. Just as it was looking back, it was looking back at Gloria Swanson's relationship with Van Strahlheim and all of that.
0: You know, you mentioned the voyeurism that is. Yeah, an essential, maybe the essential element of film watching. Yeah. You sit, you don't move, and mm-hmm. you stare at other people... Who don't know you're watching. ...who don't know you're watching. And something I'd never thought about, but that but the insinuation that you, in fact, are doing that, that you're spying on people, is assisted by camera angles. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the early silent films, when you generally had a stationary camera frontally right. addressing, it was almost as though you were part of a... An audience looking through a proscenium yeah. onto a stage. Yeah. But when you start to get sidelong angles yeah. it looks close ups and close and ups. Close-ups. Would you like to see what she's <laughs> really
1: thinking? You know? yeah. So
0: then we start to get drawn in even more. Yeah. But we're also reminded occasionally by maybe some very canny filmmakers of what we're doing when we're yeah. we're peeping, you know, this way. Well I think
1: one of the one of the films that really does that is Rear Window. Rear Window is a a wonderfully entertaining thriller. But it is basically about a man looking out of the window at other windows. And one of the most intriguing things about the film, which people don't pick up on, is that while the James Stewart character sees all these windows and lives and stories, apparently no one sees him. Right. He's very like a person at the movies.
0: (laughs) Until... Until the plot the shifts end. until the end, yeah. and he gets yeah. pulled into yeah. Yeah. R- reality. Yes. Well, you you know on that um, that issue of voyeurism, yeah. uh, you have an interesting quote in here from a writer Thomas L. Sesser. Yeah. Uh, he's talking about uh, W. F. Murnau's film Sunrise, a yeah. classic of silent cinema. He says, in that film, we face quote the open secret of filmmaking itself, intensely eroticizing the very act of looking, yeah. but also every object looked at by yep. the camera.
1: Yep. Yeah, I mean, that really is what the voyeurism is about. It makes everything you see so intensely desirable. It's a celebration of looking, and it's helplessly in love with whatever it looks at. <laughs> the movies began by picking beautiful people. We've become much more sophisticated now in that there are a lot of movies that use people who are not beautiful in that way because I think we've sort of realized consciously or not that just looking will make them desirable. Mm. And again, that's vital to advertising because it's like, you know, I mean, how do you photograph a hamburger and make it look? Beautiful. We know now. We have had that.
0: That simply throwing almost anything up on the big screen, yes. uh, you know, somehow uh, uh, stages it in the world of our dreams and our fantasies. So that almost anything can be made desirable or, uh, or frightening, appealing or frightening. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, this recent movie, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yes. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it depicts this sort of tribe of people living in the bayou living in the most destitute poverty. Uh, the main characters live in this trash-filled hovel, right? And yet there's this aura around it all of magic, yeah. right? of magical realism. Yeah. So even things that in real life would be
1: odious yeah. are made to seem in some way glamorous. Well, um, here's my sort of seminal moment in that. Um, going back to England in the 1960s, I'm sure there was an equivalent of it over here. Um, The Sunday Times started running a color magazine. And it was edited, I think, even then by Harold Evans. And it quite deliberately did things like putting a fashion model ad face-to-face with a famine victim. And John Berger has talked about this a lot. It's amazing because the the two, they take on the quality of the glossy paper. And you know intellectually that the famine victim is horrible and terrible and demands help. And the woman in the dress is impossible and unattainable and too expensive. So you know you can do nothing about either. But it's a condition of our culture to look at them side by side.
0: Mm.
1: It's a lesson in our helplessness, Mm, mm. but it's there all the time. Mm. You see more and more screens in stores. You know, once upon a time, stores played music because they had worked out that it aided purchase. There are now beautiful screened images. There's a restaurant down the street. Here in San Francisco. Yeah, which is a fish restaurant. And it has a big, high-definition TV screen screen. Which is playing all the time, footage of fishermen fishing. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, this
0: invention. And by the way, in, in in your book, you sometimes refer not to the movies. You refer to something you call movie. Yeah, like writing. Like writing. Like yeah, or painting. music. Music. You know. Okay, so so an art form unto itself. Yes.
1: But also a, f- a form unto
0: f- itself, a form and a force. Yes, absolutely, a force that, partly as a result of market imperatives, partly as a result of its own sort of internal evolution. You know, movies attempting to to top, to uh, surpass other films, yeah. right? Yeah. Drives forward in this direction and help me understand the, the arc that you see it, it traveling over the last century from. Those first really impressionable viewers, we talked about watching silent films, Mm. to the more cynical and detached uh, audience that maybe your kid's generation makes up. Along that way, I think you say we had to pull back. Mm. We became painfully aware of what the the medium was doing to us. Mm -hmm. And we deliberately severed ourselves from that experience. Am I Mm. right about that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's it. Uh, it's the passage from reality through beautiful unreality to virtual reality. And where we are at the moment, in my opinion, is to say, yes, it's a real world out there. For instance, it may be really a world warming up, but there's not a damn thing anyone can do about it. So, watch and enjoy yourself. It has destroyed, it seems to me, or undermined, all the bases of humanist, rational culture and democratic involvement. And I think the advances of the technology are going to lead to a new kind of fascism. Not a fascism where people wear black shirts and leather boots not a fascism necessarily with concentration camps. Uh, We may have concentration houses, but a situation in which we have no voice, we are consumers alone, and uh, we have to get on with it. Well, explain that, uh, especially
0: in in light of what you said earlier about a generation that is now so wary of the medium itself that that your son asks, well, how'd they do that? He's already mm-hmm. looking at the mechanisms behind it. Mm-hmm. He sees it as someone, someone's instrument and someone's plaything, and uh, something that he might himself, maybe. Am I right? You know, that he might himself
1: get involved in He's making wondered for a time. He's going off that now.
0: Aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Well, that seems like a healthy distance, right? But you're you're describing a, a medium that actually insinuates itself ever
1: deeper into yeah. our, yeah. Because how's that? Well. He's looking at his phone all the time. <laughs> he's looking at his iPad. Yeah. He's at his computer. We have an 18-year-old son who takes his computer to bed with him. He really has problems being separated from it. And he's not alone. Uh, it's increasing. And as it increases, the screens are going to become more and more powerful and more and more interesting in what they can do. And the need for reality will shrink and wither. We will we will want things on screen and we will only really believe in things on screen. Can you imagine a crisis in the world? There's a lot of crises you can imagine easily, but here's one that doesn't get thought about too much. If all the computers crashed...
0: I have tried to imagine that. And... There would
1: be an incredible panic. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have become so dependent on these things. Um, and the whole question of the ownership of these things and the kind of exercise of political power through that, amazing. It would not surprise me at all if one day Google or something like Google – ran this country. They are so more effective and efficient and far-seeing than our alleged government. And those people, the people who run Google, they are chronic decision makers. They take decisions all the time because they have machines that are based upon taking decisions, whereas our government has lost the energy or the will to make decisions. And that's, that's where I think the technology is going to really take over more and more of the country. And it's going to amount to a kind of fascism in that individuals will – they will not have individual place. Their place will be as part of the mass. And any part of the mass can be sacrificed.
0: But you really think under some centralized control or really part of a, of a large uh, you know, network of forces that really aren't subject to anybody's will?
1: I'm not sure if that's possible. Hmm. When a society gets as big as ours, I mean, the problems of resources, the ecological problems are so intense. The only solution, the only way of reaching a solution for these things is going to be unilateral imposed action
0: hmm.
1: I think I mean democracy it seems to me has is exhausted and, and uh, no longer believes it can solve the things so you had an election not that long ago in which things like the fiscal cliff which dominates us now was hardly mentioned global warming I don't think was really mentioned at all you know Politicians go for the little picky on problems.
0: The wedge issues.
1: Yes. The big things Mm. are unspeakable, Mm. literally.
0: Mm. And by the way, I haven't mentioned this during our interview, but this book isn't just about movies or movie. It's about screens in general, display screens of all kinds. Yes. So not just the big screen, but television and computers and phones and video games. All of those things we peer at and through which more and more of our life arrives these days, right? Yes. And, you know, I think that maybe this is the naive way of looking at it, but a lot of people would say it's simply um, a conduit, right? It's, it's simply something we look through to consume or connect with all these other things, whether it's information or people, right, or, or even movies. Um, but you say the screen itself has this presence, And you're now pointing to a kind of um, ominous relationship to our future and our our choices.
1: It's already less ominous because the young generation of today is, I think, alas, less sensitive to the humanistic values that we might be. It's already becoming indifferent. But yes, I, I am saying what really drove this book was the realization or the perception I had that whereas for decades we, the audience and the people who made moving pictures, had believed the audience was looking at this version of reality, I came increasingly to see that they were actually looking at, sc- at screens. Mm. and that's a habit that is in the process of overpowering the differences between the things you put on the screens Mm. you have to watch the screens Mm. I hope I'm wrong except that when you look at the problems there are out there it's no longer easy or comfortable to believe that the democratic solutions for which we have striven for the last, let's say, two hundred years are gonna work, can work. It's almost as if the the dictated answers are the only ones that have a chance. We'll see.
2: What
0: have you learned from all those years of movie going? What have you learned from the movies themselves? And maybe what lessons did you think you learned that you later revised or cast aside?
1: Well, to go back to the way we be- began, you began, a love letter about a lost love. I mean, I guess what I've learned is that the love I felt has become something more complicated, more shaded. Um, I've realized for myself that I'm now more interested in writing than seeing films. It has definitely affected, in a somewhat downbeat way, the way I see society and education and all those things, you know. At the same time, I'm not unaware of the extraordinary benefits the ability to talk to my children in England at the drop of a hat, to see them talking to me if I had a Skype, um, the ability to reference nearly anything on your computer, you know, um, these are incredible advantages. But I would just say that... that as someone who believes you have to observe yourself doing whatever you're doing, I have noticed in myself a reluctance to leave my computer. If I start to sort of look something up, suppose, I mean, I don't know, suppose I, I, I looked up today because of something I saw in the film Last night, I looked up the word kamikaze because I just wanted to know where the word came from, what it meant, all that kind of thing. And I I got that answer fairly quickly. and I think a reliable version of the answer. The
0: divine wind, right?
1: Yes, yeah. But I couldn't stop there. (laughs) So I started going deeper and deeper into the Pacific War. The Pacific (laughs) War is not uninteresting, but I didn't have the impulse to get that. As I did with Kamikaze. But what I did feel was that the habit of just going on, using the screens, and finding some other reason for using the screen was profound. And I'm not the only one who says my children watch screens all the time. Mm. And it's not an exaggeration. Mm. I'm not saying it's all children. And I'm not saying necessarily that because they watch screens a lot of the time, they're not human beings with other lives and responsibilities. But wait for the next generation. Because this is only going to increase. Hmm. And uh, it's a frightening thing. Well, David, thanks for... Um, really, I enjoyed ...for it. all the reassurance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: David Thompson's latest book is The Big Screen, The Story of the Movies. Thanks for joining us for this edition of The 7th Avenue Project. I hope you do the same next week. I'm Robert Polly. Until then, so long. And uh, do visit us online at 7thavenueproject.com.
2: And I know it's stupid To be mad about the boy I'm so ashamed of it But must admit The sleepless nights I've had About the boy Mm -hmm. On the silver screen He melts my foolish heart in every single scene although i'm quite aware that here and there are traces of the can Who's in the flurry of her first affair Will it ever cloy This odd diversity of misery and joy I'm feeling quite insane and young again And all because I'm mad about the ball